Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Retro Mecha Podcast. I'm your host Ian and as always I'm here with Craig. Hey Craig, how are you doing? Not bad man, not bad. Off work so can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> quite uh, reasonable or unseasonable weather really. It's yeah. uh, quite warm and sunny and everything for uh, mid-October. It's quite yeah. un- unusual. Been quite lucky really. Okay, so uh, we'll dive straight into it today because I haven't really got anything else that... Uh, I want to bring up and, and talk about so uh, we'll get into the meat of the content so today we're going to talk about a super robot show a go a guy show so as we said at the very end of the last episode given his influence on the mm. mecha genre we haven't actually uh, reviewed any one of his shows yeah. yet so uh, um, and really I mean there's a few shows that we could pick from going a guy really i wanted to avoid some of the obvious you know the mazingas or the get mm. robos the problem is with a lot of um, going a guy shows is a lot of them are very long <laughs> yeah and um, we have quite limited time <laughs> yes exactly there's a lot to content so it's picking so we're going to talk about steel jig today which came out in 1975 and i and i and this one was quite interesting to me because it's it's kind of its own unique thing mm, um very much so and it's kind of sits right in the middle of go nagai's peak output of super mm. robot anime in, in the mid 70s so yeah um so this was a show as we said created by go nagai and tetsuya yasuda um it was the first part of takara's magna robo toy franchise and as we talked about in the first episode of the podcast when we reviewed zambot 3 and we were talking about that you know, Zambot 3 was kind of just on the back of that real mm-hmm. peak of Super Robot anime. I mean, if you look at where this came out, it was in that middle of that mm. real peak. The big explosion, if you like. Exactly, because as Steel Jig was airing, at one point with various shows overlapping it, you know, there were six Super Robot anime yeah. airing at, at one time. That's and, pretty um, crazy when you think about it, yeah. And four of them were four of them were by Gona Guy as well, so... <laughs> <laughs> It's you know he he had he I think really from sort of mid nineteen seventy four mm. through to the beginning of seventy seven I think he at any one time he had three Super Robot shows mm. airing at he, any one time he very much and did dominate all, the genre yeah he really really did at the start you know the start of the mid of the seventies so you know this comes out in that in that real peak the boom you know the real boom either side of it you know you've got shows like great mazinga and brave redeem get a robo g mm-hmm. you know and then the other side you've got ufo robo grandizer guy king go Rapper five goys you know it's i mean it's just the amount of content that was there yeah. on tv super robot <laughs> staggering anime was just absolutely staggering you know there was space knight tekaman as well i mean mm-hmm. it is it is quite incredible so so this is a 46-episode TV series that aired from the 5th of October 75 to the 29th of August 76. It did get a sequel series as well mm. in 2007 called Jin Jig, basically, rather than Steel Jig, Steel God Jig, uh, which was a 13-episode series. There seemed to be quite a 30-year sort of renaissance of some of these classics because mm. you got, you know, there was Mazinga stuff, there was a, guy, a new Guy King show, new mm-hmm. Get a Robo stuff, so... The 2000s seem to see this like, oh, this, 30 years later, we, yeah. you know, we'll go back and revisit some of these. Probably a bit of a millennium nostalgia thing as well. Yes. You know, yeah. Kind of um, looking back over the last few decades, oh, it's the millennium now, let's bring some of these back for a new audience. Because the sequel's quite interesting because it does that thing of 
kind of taking some of the key elements and some mm. of the classic characters and kind of moving them on. Right. You know, I, I think it was 50 years in the mm. future on, on, on that sequel show. I've read so a little bit about the sequel, but I haven't actually watched that one yet. I would be really interested to see how they utilise the old characters and kind of do a next generation yeah, sort of I, thing. I watched it, oh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years, eight years ago. So, um, it's. I mean, it's all right. It's actually a pretty decent series actually but it was one of those things that i actually had i had seen jig raw then mm. watched the sequel now watch jig <laughs> with subtitles so yep the western kind experience of a bit, again a bit, the western experience again exactly a bit a bit kind of back to front um so still jig was like a lot of sort of mid-70s late 70s super robot shows was kind of very popular in other bits of the world very mm. very popular in europe absolutely um, especially yeah. in italy where it has a massive following still to this day. It does, yes. Um, um, the amount of, if, if you look online at um, Italian merchandise for Super Robot shows, it's staggering how much stuff you'll find that's like Italy exclusive. And there's a lot of Jig stuff. And they have pretty much every single Super Robot show you can think of on DVD over there too. Yeah, <laughs> I, the, the stuff that's on much DVD. Yeah, I mean, it's even, it's actually what's available mecha-wise and, and a lot of other anime, but spe- specifically um, mecha-wise, the stuff that's on DVD there even makes the American market pale oh, into yeah, absolutely. comparison. You know, it's just exploded I mean, not, over it's, there. Um, and even some modern shows, because you know some of the Masami Obari stuff. There's a show of his called Platinum Hugan Audion, mm. which I really, really like. It was the only kind of well up until uh, Super Robot Wars, the Inspector. You know, it was the only sort of two core show that he'd done. And you know that got a DVD release in yeah, Italy like ten years ago. It makes me ago, jealous you know. every time I'm looking at uh, DVDs online, and you know I see I see loads of Italian stuff on eBay, and I'm like, God, I wish that was out of here. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean that that Platinum Hugan audience set, you know, it's just like oh, if only it had English subtitles <laughs> rather than Italian subtitles on it. it. Almost makes me want to turn learn Italian just so I can you know, <laughs> understand it a bit better. Europe's but just Italian... off for Mangranami in general, really. I think, but. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. manga sales, and you know the, the the breadth of different manga they've got over there is pretty insane as well. I remember going on holiday to a couple of different uh, places, and you know, seeing what they had and being like, "My God, <laughs> yeah. it really is amazing." Because yeah. um, Italians like Jig so much that they actually made a live action tribute film in mm. 2015 called "Call Me Jig." You know, yes, I, mean, I read how... about this during the research for the show, and I was quite, I was quite amazed that that existed. It was such a, it seems like such an oddball kind of art house film. That yeah, also pays homage to the anime. It's, uh, it's really interesting that I might actually watch that at some point just out of curiosity. You know, it's yeah, I know. I was, I was tempted to uh, watch it out of uh, curiosity as well, and also it was quite popular in Latin America as well, where it mm. was um, part of a uh, El, El Festival Lost Robots, which was similar to. Uh, Jim Terry's Force 5 series that, that came out in North America. So, uh, you know, it featured a, a number of 70s super robot shows kind of syndicated. And re-edited. Um, you know, and, adapted and re-edited sort of yeah. thing. So a very, very kind of popular show, really. Influential, um, yeah. So, so, Craig, what was your uh, introduction or, you know, background on, with Steel Jig? Well, Steel Jig is actually the only go-on-a-guy show that... Or you know the only Golden Guy property that I had not seen anything of prior to doing the uh, the podcast. It was one that I'd seen a lot online about, 
I'd seen uh, images of um, of a lot of his various weapons and the sort of Panzeroid things like that. Um, but I'd, and I knew a little bit about the story and how it differed a little bit with the sort of protagonist being a cyborg. But other than that, I didn't really, I hadn't actually seen anything or read the manga. So it was really interesting going at this. It was one of those that I would have probably gotten round to by now if not for the podcast and I kind of held off on it. Because um, every single other uh, Nagai uh, property, you know, I'm kind of pretty well versed in. So it was really interesting to delve into this for the first time, actually. I watched it raw back when I was watching lots of stuff raw in the mm. sort of through the mid two thousands. Um, yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of visual stuff um, in it. So even though I didn't really understand, I, and actually having watched it with subtitles, I don't think I there wasn't much. I don't think I missed mm. not having subtitles to be honest. But there was a lot of visual stuff in it, which kind of was quite interesting, and that's why you know it was quite. It's one of the reasons why I shortlisted it for the mm. podcast. Really, um, it was just like, well, there was there was some definitely some stuff to kind of explore in that. So um, I can see how watching that with without subtitles, you would be able to get a lot of the gist of it because it is quite a visual show. Mm. It's some of its plots quite simplistic, but then there's probably only a couple of nuances you didn't really get mm. by a sort of raw viewing. But it's such a visually interesting show. I can imagine it'd be very entertaining even without subtitles. Yeah, and then uh, as I said, I watched. The uh, sequel series at the you know 2012 13ish or something and um, and then I've gone watched it with subtitles now so I do need to kind of go back <laughs> and watch the the sequel again now having yeah. understanding the, the full context because again I don't think I don't think I missed too much watching it back then uh, the the sequel without mm-hmm. fully understanding but like I say I think actually I got the gist of most of the series without really understand you know without actually knowing exactly what they, the uh, characters were saying so uh, so yeah it's um it is uh, it is quite an interesting one definitely right we'll get into the reviews <laughs> So we'll get into some of the background details. Kotetsu Jig, or Steel Jig to give it its Western name, was a 46-episode TV series that ran from the 5th of October 1975 to the 29th of October 1976. Directed by Masayuki Akehi, who also directed the Mazinga Getarobo crossover films from the 70s, as well as the Dangard Ace movies. He directed a lot of other TV series that are very obscure to a Western audience, as well as doing a lot of episode direction. It was produced by Toei Animation and Nakamura Production and broadcast by TV Asahi. Go Nagai was the original creator and the music was by Michiaki Watanabe. The character designs were by Kazuo Nakamura, predominantly an animator and this would be his only character design credit. It's not available to buy or stream in the West but a fan sub is available. Seiki no Magne Robot. 
So now, as usual, we will do our review of the first episode, see how good it was at introducing or hooking us into the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. So a brief outline of the, the story of the first episode. So we start off with a newspaper article that talks about a lot of earthquakes happening in and around Japan. Then we cut to a, a car race that's happening in the rain. We get introduced to our main protagonist and he's battling with, with one of his kind of rivals. peers, rivals. Yeah, um, He causes a crash. Hiroshi, our hero, uh, is run over. He's not killed. He gets back in the car and wins the race. Then we see the appearance of our main antagonist, Himika and the Jamatai kingdom that uh, she represents um, and her main henchmen Ikima, Amaso and Mishima and then we cut to a lab where Professor Shiba who's Hiroshi's father is talking about something that's obviously there's something that's going on and, and what he feared has happened has come true he gets attacked by Himika's henchmen looking for this mysterious chrysalis and is ultimately killed and then that basically leads to a introduction of Jig after Professor Shiba gives Hiroshi some some gloves and a pendant. He becomes Jig. He fights the first of the robot of the monster of the weeks, and that leaves him standing at the end with a, a vow to protect Japan. So that's the kind of basic scope of it. It's quite an interesting episode in that really it kind of it sets out enough. You, you find out this thing about Hiroshi is. He's invincible. And you don't know why he's invincible. Yeah. And and Chibi, who's one of the kind of secondary characters in the family, points out that he should have been dead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that commentator and all the uh, people in the stall are yes. just amazed. Because he gets bounced repeatedly off different cars and like goes out from yeah. underneath them, being thrown about like a pinball. And yet just so, gets back up, gets in his car and regains the lead and wins the race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so there's lots of question marks around that, but it's never quite explained what, what's happened there. And then you get this big flashback to Professor Shiba discovering the Jamatai Kingdom and, you know, these kind of relics and everything. And, you know, he's been preparing for the last 25 years for mm-hmm. for their eventual return, which has kind of happened. There's some real classic tropes in this. The bit where, and this always makes me laugh, but the bit where he's <laughs> driving home along mm-hmm. this really... It's not a proper road. It's this rocky path in yes. the, in the. It's like why are they always driving along these unfinished mountain <laughs> yeah, passes in I these know. shows? You know, it's it's crazy, isn't it? Because that whole scene with um, is it Akima, uh, the henchman yeah. that kills um, yeah. Roshi's dad? That whole scene is is quite funny because, like you say, you know, this this rocky sort of dodgy mountain path that just wouldn't exist as part of a proper road. But it's also, that whole scene is just quite funny because of the fact he doesn't even really mean to kill uh, Hiroshi's dad. He just kind of no, gets knocked off the really dodgy roadside cliff. <laughs> and he's, and Kima's actually like, damn it, because they wanted to get more information <laughs> yeah, out of him. I know. <laughs> and because also, they rough him up. <laughs> yeah, and that's really funny as well, because, you know, they're an ancient kingdom with supernatural powers, you know, like a humanoid race from before the existence of man. And what do they use to get information out of him? A stick with a frayed end that they beat him around the face with. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's just the way they, in exactly that, they use that stick. They rough him up a bit and then he kind of gets up and stumbles about, loses his balance. And like you say, it's it's Ikema's like, ah, oh, damn it. You know, he wasn't supposed to fall down. And then um, Michi, who's 
who's another one of um, Hiroshi's friends. You know, the, the Hiroshi's friends who you know becomes one of the main protagonists. You know, turns up and she's like, "Oh, he's fallen down the cliff," <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it, and she gets him home and. She gets him back to the family home and, you know, hands over the box and, and everything. And yeah, because all... the box contains the sort of pendant and the gloves, which are how he yeah. transforms into Jake. And he kind of gives him this legacy as he's sort of dying, which is kind of a bit reminiscent of another Gonagai work of Devilman. You know, like, although Rio's, yeah. Rio's archaeologist father discovers demons and he leaves the legacy behind. And although his father's dead... When he discovers it all, it does have a bit of a similar feel to that. It does feel like something Gonagai quite enjoyed as a plot device. <laughs> so it sets all this, you know, family kind of tragedy up, and there's this kind of all this, like I say, backstory. Professor Shiba, he dies, but then Hiroshi's out on his bike and he hears his voice, and then you find that Professor Shiba, again, in another classic 70s super robot trope is he's uploaded his conscious into this supercomputer. Yeah, so he's um, kind of got cons- a AI that's yeah. able to kind of fulfil his role in build base, which is the headquarters. So yeah, that is something that is quite reminiscent of that era, definitely. Yeah, I mean, even in 70, yeah, 75, there's lots of stuff which is, you know, was just really prevalent at that mm, time. Definitely. Um, and then... Professor Shiba telling him that he's still Jig and he has to fight Himiko. And there's also an element a bit there as well where where Michi talks about the fact that she's kind of given up her youth mm. to to train for this moment as well. And this and there's this kind of real heaviness mm, to this definitely. episode. Definitely you know. just like he's just has this legacy sort of dropped on him out of nowhere, doesn't he? Yeah. He didn't know anything about the existence of the Jamatai Kingdom or Himika. He didn't know anything, you know, about what his dad had been doing that time. And that is quite interesting because that is a lot to do with Hiroshi's character. He hates his dad at the beginning because he yeah. thinks that his dad absorbs himself in his work and doesn't really care about the family. But obviously, for 25 years, he's been preparing for uh, yeah. Queen Himika and the uh, Jantai Kingdom coming back. And he's trying to save Japan. So, yeah, he's been a yeah. bit busy. <laughs> and it's kind of like everyone around him knew what was going on apart from mm. Hiroshi. Yeah, well, his his mother definitely knows, and obviously Michi knows because she's been training to. Uh, she's been to fly exactly. so, big shooter, which is support craft. You know, everyone around him's been preparing for him, apart from him, which mm. I always find quite unusual. And this goes back to this fact that we know he's a cyborg, but there's obviously a something missing. Mm. You know, out of that, and he, and he's kind of clueless, and then yeah. And then he's he's dumped in the middle of it, which sets up some interesting dynamics in this show. Really, I think there's some really cool elements as well because I quite like the way the uh, Jamatai henchmen and and all the foot soldiers come out of the ground and yes, disappear right, out yeah. the ground. I mean, that, that's really cool. I think that, that is it's it's. I imagine that would creep a lot of kids out. Actually, um, yeah. you know, back when it aired. You know, with all, all the sort of rocks forming into kind of beings and mm. having glowing red eyes and the way Himika kind of close-ups on the sort of, on her face, she looks quite demonic and things. And mm. there's a lot yeah. of atmosphere in that, the way it's done. It's definitely a really great villain introduction. I particularly like that about the first episode, yeah. Yeah. And we get the first Haniwa Phantom, which basically is means terracotta. So just what Haniwa means. Um, so it's, it's like a, a Japanese kind of burial Thing, so it's things that are made yeah. out of the earth. Yeah, they're um, like clay statues, aren't they? The, clay the, statues, that's the, right. They appear in quite a few um, Japanese pop culture things. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a, a 
yeah, like you say, it's yeah. quite a common thing in in Japanese culture. There's a quite cult kaiju movie called Damaijin, which has just recently been released in the UK on Blu-ray. It's the first time it's been available, and that's about a gigantic one coming to life, much in the same oh, really? vein as the uh, Hanawa Phantoms. It's a really good movie, actually, I recommend it, because it's, it's all about like the vengeance of the sort of gods and people of Japan being wronged and then the the sort of statue comes to life to protect and help. So it's it's a oh, monster right. but it's a monster on the side of good. So, yeah. But there's some oh, very interesting. interesting folklore attached to the Hanawa statue. There is some very really yeah, yeah, I was I was reading I was reading up on it. Yeah, there's some very, very interesting folklore attached to the to the Hanawa. So we get the first Hanawa Phantom and then we get the first transformation sequence mm. after Hiroshi says sorry to his dad for being angry at him or whatever mm. and you know the hero declares he's gonna fight in, in true in true, in true anime fashion. fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the first fight is pretty cool. I mean, the the modular nature of Jig is mm. is a really cool idea. You know, the fact mm. that he has swappable parts. I mean, he can replace his parts if they get damaged. You know, if he loses it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it has the traditional rocket punch. He has he has more than one rocket punch actually. <laughs> yeah, and you know, he's he can after shooting his fists off, he can sort of replace them with other sort of weapons and things. But also, if he gets his fists damaged or sort of broken, he can get new ones set out by the big shooter. Because what yeah. we need to sort of, you know, tell you for if you're not familiar with the uh, the show is that the big shooter is the support craft and it fires missiles and helps in the battles. But essentially, it delivers Jake's parts mm. to Hiroshi because Hiroshi transforms into a sort of cyborg humanoid form, morphs into a giant robot head. Head. And then has all of Jig's parts sent to him, and they, they connect magnetically, and he yeah. becomes Steel Jig, which is one of the most unusual and creative, mm. but also pretty surreal super robot transformations. Because yes. you could argue, I mean, well, no, he's definitely not a true super robot, is he really? No, no, it's a very and you know it is a very very different take on the trans, you know, the mm. traditional sort of super robot transformation especially when you look at a lot of the shows around it mm. especially like with Getter Robo and the combination stuff that was becoming very very popular you know you had Getter Robo G before as well which you know that those you know the three heroes and the three individual craft I mean that was kind of where the trend was mm. beginning to go oh, absolutely, um, with yeah. super robot anime in that time and and for this to do the really he transforms into the head, and then everything else just kind of bolts Connects on. Like I say, him, yeah. it's it's a very very interesting um, and really quite unique mecha design, really. Um, and that's really again, that's kind of why I had shortlisted it because there's things like that in the show that are are really quite different to I think a lot of oh yeah the super robot stuff that was kind of you know prevalent sort of you know around and 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 coming out in and in and at the same time as uh, Jig was so um definitely yeah I mean I quite like the fact as well that Jig he struggles that initial struggle he has in yes. the episode he, he falls over he can't mm. quite combine properly and another, and all the rest another of thing it. that you do see in Gonaga uh, shows um, quite often is that the protagonist generally can't control the craft perfectly or mm. you know in this case he can't control his own body perfectly and that's what's really interesting about um you know his nature is the fact that he doesn't have to learn to control a craft if you like you know or a vehicle yeah. he's just come to terms with what his own abilities are and what he's yeah. capable of kind of like i suppose kind of like more like a traditional superhero story yeah and that and you do kind of get that more and i think that's where again jig is quite interesting because it's 
Jeeg feels more like a superhero rather mm. than a mecha. Yeah. You know, or a, I know this show is effectively quite early on in the mecha series, but as we said, there was a, a, an absolute ton of content already mm. available yeah. at this time. So, you know, it, it is doing something quite different from the usual so, yeah. combination and, and hero tropes that other shows were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, Hiroshi wins. Jeeg mm-hmm. wins. Defeats the Haniwa Phantom. You know the, the, the declaration that he's going to protect. Yeah, Japan he's riding on the his, rest of it. So he's riding on his bike, isn't he? Uh, sort of talking yeah. about how uh, he's going to carry on his father's legacy and and kind of continue as well. I think actually, it's a very very solid first mm. episode. Um, I think it really kind of does do all the right things to get you interested. I think it's it's got this backstory, so there's a, there's a load of backgrounds to the, the uh, antagonist, the Jamatai mm. kingdom there. Yeah. There's there's a story about his father and Hiroshi that you, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, you get the first glimpse of Jig and some mm. of the other supporting characters. So I think it, it plants plenty of interesting seeds that that make you want to go back and and see more i think i think yeah. you know for me it's a it's a really solid first episode Same. yeah absolutely no i really i really do like the uh, first episode <laughs> as we discussed a bit of um uninten- a few unintentionally funny bits but <laughs> yeah and then there's some intentionally funny bits as well like where jig's stumbling around and the, the you know he's failing to collect, connect the limbs and there's that yeah. part where he actually kind of accidentally he sort of stumbles over and then one of his legs sort of connects and you kind of get the feeling if you didn't trip that <laughs> yeah. way, it wouldn't have connected, and that's quite effective actually. And I do, I do like those little touches in it. Well, but yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely well paced. It's sort of you know it fits in a lot of exposition, and because that scene where Hiroshi's dad uh, reveals to him everything about the um, Jamatai is mm. quite well done. Yeah, and he's kind and of I faced think... with his dad on the screen as the sort of AI program. It's that's quite effective, I think. Yeah, definitely, and I think. Um, you know, you point about the comedy as well. So I think like Hiroshi's rival in the car race and and some of that, you know, it almost feels a little bit wacky races at times. It does very much so. Some in of fact, that, doesn't it? I've got that exactly in my notes. Yeah, I yeah, think mean, there's a little bit of know. subversion comedy as well because there's the scene where uh, Pancho, because uh, Don and Pancho are the kind of main yeah. two kind of comic relief characters, and, and like you say, um, Don is his rival. And he's he's sitting at the edge of the uh, audience with like this kind of yeah. threatening looking cannon, and you think he's going to actually yeah. shoot the car, but then he fires <laughs> yeah. a banana out. Fires a banana skin. <laughs> yeah, I know. So and, I quite and, like that subversion sort of comedy where you think, yeah. oh, I know what's going to happen. Oh, no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Because Pancho's there with like a, a bogey dripping from his nose. Yes. You know, and and the, the whole way he's drawn and, and everything yeah. and his language and the way you know his his voice. And like you say, you initially expect he's brought this big can out, and when it like it's like a you know potato gun that fires a banana skin, which causes the car to skid. A whole, a single banana skid causes you know a, a racing car to skid out of control and everything. I mean it's yeah, I mean it kind of, and that's very early on, and I think yeah. it sets that. And actually, that and that kind of tone is is quite interesting because it, it's not silly comedy, but mm. it's, but it's kind of it's. It is almost borderline silly comedy. Yeah, in it's some kind of, it. of yeah, it's like borderline goofy a lot of it. Um, borderline goofy—that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, but then you have this really heavy stuff with, with you know, Professor uh, Shiba getting beaten up and then mm. dying and then unloading all this stuff onto yeah. Hiroshi and unloading you know, this kind Hiroshi, of legacy. You yeah. know, as he sort of dies. Yeah, it's so it's got a real you know, there's this real sort of tonal shift 
kind of mm. constantly through it. And I, I don't think it's any worse for it. Um, but it no. is quite interesting, you know, how they yeah. how they balance it out, really. But yeah. I, I, I think reasonably effectively. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, I think we've discussed some other shows where the comedy does kind of ruin it a little bit. I mean, Dyke mm. Engel um, had some really awkward stuff in it which just did not yeah. gel with it. That did sort of ruin it slightly for me. But there's no, I feel like there's kind of room for both. Uh, Daltanius did that to a degree as well. Mm. Not always yeah. effectively, but um, it sort of did kind of juggle the two uh, a lot yeah. of the time. And I, and I think that it gets away with it to a degree in this show. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So what would you rate the this first episode out of ten then, Craig? I'd probably say an eight. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've got eight down. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very solid first episode. So mm, uh, definitely made me want to check out episode two pretty much right away. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that, um, like we often say with the good first episodes, is that the pacing's right and it fits the right amount of information, and it's can't really fault it on too, on too much. Really, it's um, it's pretty solid. Yeah, definitely. So now we'll get into our main review of the the main content of Jig. Um, and we'll do something slightly differently here because normally we have a separate section to talk about the characters. But essentially, because most of the story is actually the character's story, mm. we're kind of we're going to integrate them together because it's yeah. Otherwise, we're going to kind of duplicate or yeah, repeat ourselves quite a bit. I think otherwise. <laughs> so essentially, the the story of Jig is Hiroshi's story. Our mm. main protagonist as we talked about in the first episode we see him that he's essentially a cyborg mm-hmm. um and then he ends up kind of losing his father becomes the head of the family mm-hmm. becomes jig he's a cyborg and as we get into the start of the story um initially you see this bit where he's you know struggling to become jig and i, yeah. and I, and I quite like that because yeah. it plays out over about five or six episodes mm-hmm. of him kind of struggling to transform and, and get to grips with Jeeg, mm-hmm. get to grips with becoming the head of the, the family and all the rest of it. Um, and all through that first part, probably the first 10 or 15 episodes, isn't it? Where, yeah, I'd say so. Where he knows there's something isn't right. Yeah. Because yeah. like in the first episode, like mm-hmm. Chibi, who's, you know, this sort of secondary character in the in the family, says, oh, you should have been dead, <laughs> you yeah. know. Absolutely, and he, he knows that his body is uh, pretty much invulnerable, but doesn't know why. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's he has, um, you know, he sort of comes he comes off his motorbike in pretty dramatic fashion as well. Mm. At one point during a sort of failed transformation of Jig, I think he falls like into a canyon or something. Yes, <laughs> and um, and so there's there's quite a few times in that first sort of. Uh, you know, run of of episodes um, where he's kind of dealing with his transformation into Jig, um, where he should be dead, and he's he's realizing, you know, what what is up with me and my body? Like, you know, how how is this possible, sort of thing? Yeah, and that carries on, and and at the same time with Himika and the, her Jamatai henchmen, they're going on and on about looking for this chrysalis. Yes, which is like chrysalis, a bronze you know, bell, which is basically a bronze bell with an inscription on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through that first bit, you've got Himika looking for this chrysalis. You've got Hiroshi sort of constantly arguing with his dad because mm. his dad won't give him any answers. And because his dad's quite harsh on him yes. all the time. Mm. It's, it's like always on it, Yeah, Hiroshi. He's trying to sort you know. of, um, you know, get his... He's, he's basically always on about his responsibilities and he's 
yeah. you know, tell them how to be, uh, you know, a hero, how to be the sort of head of the family. Because that's the thing is, in addition to the responsibility of becoming Jig, he's also, as you mentioned, now head of the family as well. You know, it doesn't really go into the sort of family dynamic as to how he makes his money. I'm assuming it's from his car racing. <laughs> Or is yeah. it? Or is it that he's also a mechanic? Well, he runs a garage, doesn't yeah, he? So yeah. So it's, it's not really sure whether the source of income is from this mechanic or whether he's from being a racer. But he seems to be providing for the family. He seems yeah. to have gotten that kind of head of the family role. But as you say, uh, pr- the professor is uh, his father's always kind of honoured him. And even though in that first episode he sort of come to the realisation that his dad wasn't always there because he was mm. he was preparing for the Jamatai coming. He still doesn't always get on with them. You know, he's still <laughs> and, he's, and he feels and he feels like, you know, it, he does feel like this massive kind of burden has been left on him. And it's it's interesting the way that sort of plays out, I think. Yeah, it is because like and in turn, like Hiroshi's really harsh on everyone around him. He really as is. he kind of he's you know, he's always like having a go at his mum. He's always yeah. having a go at Miyumi, his younger sister. Mm. I mean, he slaps her about a few times yes, in a few episodes. I know, it, like properly slaps her. Yeah, you know. he really does. And he's kind of difficult to like in the beginning. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for all you know, he's gone through a lot. He does really give his sort of family and his kind of surrogate family a really hard time. Because that's the thing. A lot of the characters, um, you know, a lot of the secondary characters, like Chibi, for example. He's not like a blood relative, but he's like part of the surrogate family. Mm, yeah, and and you know he's so he's these characters are sort of central to the show not only because they're part of you know some of them know about Jake, some of them don't, but you know they're all part of the household. Yeah, because that's right. Because like Miyumi, his younger sister, like doesn't know that he's Jake, mm. um, but she starts to suspect in the later bit of the series because. Yeah. I mean, to your point about Hiroshi not being a likable character, I don't think he's likable through the whole series. Because mm. I think it's in quite yeah. a late, one of the very later episodes where he slaps Miyumi again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and she runs off and she gets captured by the, the robot soldiers. Um, That's right, yes. And then he's on this mission to kind of find her and protect her and mm. all the rest of it. So, you know, I don't think... At any point, he's he's likable. No, I think he's he's one of the most unlikable antagonists I think mm. I've ever seen in in that kind I'd of highly, show. I'd highly agree. I think he becomes more tolerable in terms of you know he does mm. he reaches a certain level of understanding of certain characters, but he he never seems to completely grow up. He always seems to put his no. own kind of traumas first, mm. and, and like it's always like he's being badly done to all the time. Yes, yeah. and there, there are times <laughs> when he makes some absolutely terrible decisions. Yeah, where I mean, there's there, there's one episode where he basically just can't be bothered to sort of yes, uh, yeah. to like um, to go and research something that's happening that might be a potential Hanawa Phantom attack. Yeah, and uh, Michi tells him, "No, I think you need to take this seriously. This could be something." And he's like, yeah. "I think he's like off fishing or something." <laughs> That's, I was going to say that's the episode where he's off fishing, yeah. yeah. And, and he's like, "Nah, I'm just no, nah, I'm just taking it easy. I'm just fishing. I don't care what you say. I'm fed up with everything. I'm just." Gonna... And then it does turn out to be something really serious. I'm sure Buildbase gets attacked. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's miles away, and he can't respond because he's because he's so far away or unprepared. You know, and, it's, and he does things a lot like of that. things and like that. I say that's why I just don't think he's a particular. Never quite grows into a particularly no. likable character. So every time I thought he'd matured, and all oh right, actually he's done something quite um, you know selfless there. 
he would then disobey a direct order from director diary or he would uh you know disobey his father or like not listen to to michi or something so yeah or, or slap somebody. <laughs> you're, just, you're just like, Christ, man, Hiroshi, just grow up a little bit. And that's the thing, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think about the amount of, uh, you think about the amount of hatred leveled at characters like Shinji and Evangelion, you know, for, for mm. not, who had a hell of a lot mm. of things to deal with and you can understand his sort of traumas and things. Hiroshi, you know, to a, to a degree, you're like, okay, He's had a lot dumped on him, this kind of legacy from beyond the grave and suddenly becoming head of the family. But there's really no need to treat everybody so shabbily, like, 90% yeah, of the time. Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny because, like, you know, his mum takes some sympathy on him, you mm. know, the fact that predicament her husband's put everyone in. Mm. Um, and there's a bit where she goes to see him when he's in the computer and, and properly calls him out and says, like, you know, you need to lay off Hiroshi a, a mm. bit, you know. You know, you need to treat him a bit differently. You can't keep on at him, mm. you know, in this sort of antagonistic manner that yeah. and harsh manner that you are. She properly calls him out on it, and that's quite a yeah, that's kind of quite a good scene. Definitely. And the funny thing is, though, is that you know, <laughs> the the thing that I can't get over about the sort of plotting of the show, though, is how does he not know that he's a cyborg? I mean, when, no cyborg, yeah, because all, I mean. When you're watching these sorts of shows, especially when it's they're going back to you know like the seventies and things like that, there was a certain degree of information in super robot shows that it doesn't that you you just have to take on board. You just have to say right, okay, this is a show aimed aimed at uh, kids. Yeah. It's a cartoon, you know. It, yeah. It's just there are certain things that you they don't necessarily need to be explained, like how they know how to do all the attacks without yeah, seeing yeah. them, learning them, or what they're called or anything yeah. like that. But it's just the fact that. He's completely invulnerable, and he's able to morph into a giant robot's head. So, yeah. <laughs> at what point did he not question the fact he could turn into a giant robot head and say, "Oh, perhaps I'm part mechanical"? Because it's like episode twelve when it's revealed mm. to him that he finds out that he's a cyborg, which is mm. literally quarter of the way through the series. Mm. And he remember he has that kind of he does have like sort of flashbacks to to times he's been invulnerable, and he remembers getting. Knocked mm. around by the cars, but he doesn't kind of put those two that yeah. two, two together. <laughs> no, because it's one of those things. Because I we talked about this off air a bit. Because it's like, well, you know, I did have to check because like, when mm. I rewatched the first episode, I was like, no, he definitely doesn't. And I checked back through all my notes, and it's like, no, you definitely don't see him converted. It, the show starts with mm. him as a cyborg. Yeah, and then he just has to figure it out. There's no and then sort he eventually of, gets to. There's no like Kashan style origin or anything like. Um, no, no. You know, it's it, he doesn't start the show as a sort of uh, human, and it is it is off screen prior to uh, to the events of the show. Because, <laughs> I mean, there are certain elements of of the obviously you know from the beginning that he's a, he's a cyborg to the viewer, and as you say, he only finds out a way in, but when he does find out. There's still this kind of mystery about the um, the chrysalis and how that is, yeah. you know, where it is is a big mystery yeah. in the show, and so Himika and um, uh, generals are constantly searching for it, and you know that um, actually in one point uh, Hiroshi goes and confronts his dad and says, "Look, this thing that they're looking for, where is it? Because if I yeah. know, I perhaps I can, you know, sort of protect it better." And he's yeah. like, "Well, it's on a need to know basis, so you don't need to know." <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> and th- and that's one of the things that plays all the way through to the point where 
he learns where it is because it's like again it's like that other constant mystery because mm. the professor obviously knows where it is and mm. and Hiroshi's desperate to know and it's in him and mm. and he keeps that right up until like two thirds of the way through the series really mm. or certainly yeah. past the halfway point until that's revealed and then eventually Himika and and the henchmen kind of cotton on to mm. where it is as well because it's like oh that, you know they they eventually figure it out themselves. So it leads to this really quite uh, dark episode where they basically try to dissect him to get the bell. That is yes. real, like, sort of Nightmare Fuel yeah. 70 Super Robot stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're going to, like, sort of cut it out of them. And, he, they've, you know, they've got him sort of, like, all kind of strung up on this device. And uh, <laughs> Akima's getting all these blades out and stuff. It's really quite quite uh, great. Yeah, that is, a, that is quite a, yeah, kind of almost yeah, like you say, a very dark and potentially gruesome episode. And there are a um, lot of things like that which I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get onto as the series uh, goes on that, that, that do underline just how different some of these shows in uh, Japan could be <laughs> compared to uh, Western shows. There's some real nightmare fuel in this one. <laughs> there is, and um, and just you know, just before we kind of move on, the, the other kind of bit of the, the character's harshness is is it Chibi, who's this funny little guy in there? I mean, he's quite yeah. kind of small and got a squeaky voice and whatever. But the way he talks to people is like really harsh sometimes. He's got this really mm. matter of fact kind of way, you know, and he's always like quite blunt about what people have done. And it's like, yeah, everyone's just really nasty to everybody else in this <laughs> series. There's no, you know, no one's. Uh, no one's kind of really nice to each other at all, sort of thing. Yeah, so, there's uh, definitely a lot. Yeah, of it's, got a, it's a very kind of odd tone in in that respect. Mm. I think. Um, yeah, they're a pretty dysfunctional family, really. I mean, I know very. I know they've uh, they've definitely got uh, a bit of a weird relationship, having an AI dad and all sorts of <laughs> you know a house full of sort of surrogate people and. It's um, yeah, you know, it's... the dad's an AI program, but it's yeah, it is. It, <laughs> <laughs> it is very, very uh, strange the way these they go on sometimes. The mother comes off uh, very well, you know. She's she's uh, quite canny, but the rest of them, you know, uh, yeah, you know, they're a bit messed up. <laughs> Actually, uh, I mean, Michi's, she's Michi's pretty canny as well. She's quite a nice character, you know. She's she's yeah. quite responsible, and she does give Hiroshi um, a hard time, uh, yeah. often for good reason. You know, she's yes. not like Hiroshi's dad. You know, she will, she'll kind of correct him when he's putting a foot wrong and when he's being overly harsh or uh, or irresponsible, mainly irresponsible, really. Yeah, Michi is like his kind of moral compass almost. Mm. Like you say, she will put him straight where like his dad's just giving him a hard time. She mm-hmm. was, she was just like, no, you're wrong or your attitude's wrong because of this. Mm. You know, um, you know, she's much more level-headed and. Hiroshi's mum essentially is just, you know, she's his housewife. You know, they have money worries. You know, there's a couple yeah. of episodes where she's worried about money for food and all the rest mm-hmm. of it and stuff, you know, and she's just trying to keep, you know, mm. the nuclear family together yeah, sort of absolutely. thing through all these harsh times because they're essentially saving the world. You know? yeah, so exactly. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting uh, thing for any sort of super robot show to, like, to sort of bring up that, you mm. know, just the kind of upkeep of the family. You know, interesting little sort of uh, yeah. thing that to, for it to be concerned with. So, yeah, it's quite a nice little touch, I guess. Just a little bit more world-building. That kind of then leads us into the, the second main point. So, after they discover that the Bronze Bell or the Chrysalis is within uh, Hiroshi and they try and get it out, they, they basically get a scan of the 
inscription on it. Mm. She finds a kind of essentially like a um a path to this sort of mysterious doorway that's within yeah her own lair. Like she, the the sort of caves and things which they inhabit under the ground has this kind of like hidden doorway that she didn't know about. So once she's found the doorway, she then based on the inscription uh, incantation and basically opens a door which then brings about a new antagonist the emperor dragon and he basically comes out bumps her off bumps off one of her henchmen and then takes over yeah. and we we then go on to this completely different path yeah absolutely through yeah. the last third of the series you know yeah. and it's really strange it's just like and it completely, all happens within an episode completely basically out of left field yeah what I should point out as well is that um, one of the generals isn't killed immediately. It is a bit later on. Oh, it is a, it's a yeah. bit later. That's that's yeah. true. Yeah. But it's really interesting how it how it um, changes the path of the sort of villains. Uh, you know, all, mm. all the sort of generals of Himika, because the generals of Himika are now forced to serve a new master emperor, Dragon, mm. and they're not very happy about that. You know, they're they're loyal. No. They're loyal to Himika still. So they basically um, start to kind of like develop a bit of an uprising. And try to plot yeah. against them, which is what results in in one of them being killed. Because, uh, you know, they, he sort of discovers the kind of treachery. But this kind of puts them on the back foot and it makes them, you know, kind of not trusted by Emperor Dragon. And and so he, he doesn't he doesn't sort of uh, trust them to carry out a lot of the missions and things. And that, that so it's really interesting that, you know, the, the generals become quite important characters in the second half of the show. Mm. I mean, they were in the first half of the show, but they developed so much more. You know, you find out much more about how they were, you know, how they really were very loyal to Himika and weren't just following her out of fear. And, you know, it's quite interesting the, the few points where you, you know Himika isn't completely dead, mm. but she reappears at just a few occasions towards the end. Yeah. You know, actually, Ikima and Amaso actually kind of almost bond with her at one point don't they and yeah that's right because there's an episode where they summon a spirit and it p- yeah. possesses one of the Hanawa phantoms or actually the kind of more the more robotic in the second half of the show because the emperor dragon has he has robot soldiers as henchmen instead of the the sort yeah. of living ones and he has more mechanical looking um, yeah we get the robot beasts rather than the uh Hanawa phantoms, phantoms. Yeah, yeah that's right um and in this episode, um, Himika's spirit is summoned into one of the uh, the sort of the robot beasts, and there's another one where they they actually sort of merge with her as well. So you, yeah. you get so although her physical body's dead, she is kind of still a spirit. Spiritually, she's still about kind mm. of thing, isn't she? She's not quite, you know. She still wants her goal of you know the the Jamatai kingdom, you mm. know, to to uh you know to be resurrected and her to be the leader of it you know that's still... right whereas dragon sim simply seems to just want the old supervillain <laughs> ideal of subjugation of humanity really that's it that's <laughs> it yeah and it's really interesting how the generals are very important to the plot because once we lose um one of the generals we they're placed by another general general flora mm. who is um emperor dragon's kind of right-hand woman, if you like. And she's kind of this plant-sort-based of kind of um, yeah. sort of creature. The sort of female kind of um, plant lady, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And um, and she uh, becomes quite an important character in the second half. Because her character is really, really interesting because mm. of her backstory. So centuries ago, Emperor Dragon 
basically kind of wiped out her village and mm. she was killed protecting her parents but mm-hmm. they died anyway and then he brought her back to life and then she served as his uh, henchman but she goes through this real struggle with like mm. is she doing the right thing should she actually serve emperor dragon or should she fight against him that's right and, yeah. and her arc and what ends up happening to her and we won't spoil everything that mm. that happens in in the show but what happens with her, you know, her interactions with Hiroshi and, and when yeah. she starts questioning herself mm. is really, really, really interesting. And I, I, to be honest, I think her story probably mm-hmm. over those 15 episodes mm. or so it does. Yeah, very much. It's so. Actually, it's probably one of the, the most interesting story arcs in the in the series, to be honest. Yeah, because she feels a loyalty to Emperor Dragon. Mm. But what she doesn't realize is, you know, the thing is, is she I believe she thought her family was still alive. Mm. Whereas Hiroshi actually reveals that he didn't just take her from the village; he actually killed her parents as well. Yeah, and I don't yeah. believe she actually knew that. So that is that is another thing that that kind of puts her, you know, makes her no. sort of question as to whether she's she's doing the right thing or not. She died thinking she'd saved her parents, mm. but what she doesn't realise that Emperor Dragon just wiped the village out, mm-hmm. um, which, as you say, gets revealed, and that's where she she starts to have this real strug- like struggle of conscience, really. Mm. And actually, her f- final episodes and final scenes are just really, really good. Yeah, they are. You know, I just I think they're very, very cleverly uh, like emotional mm, in that. Absolutely, we won't spoil too much about that, but it, it, they do pack an emotional punch, certainly. Yeah. It's really good how much the generals are involved in the sort of plot mm. of this show, and how yeah, much we do yeah. get to see the sort of personalities much more than in many shows. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, and then ultimately that all leads up to a final battle. And the one thing I will say um, is that that final episode, or well, final. Battle. I won't say final episode. <laughs> Episode 45, which is like the end of the battle, Mm -hmm. it wraps up, I think, it just seems to wrap up ever so quickly. So the the final battle essentially starts in episode 44, which, you know, you get that first battle and then it goes into episode 45 and it's straight off the bat, it's, you know, you're straight into the battle. But for me, that final confrontation with Emperor Dragon just kind of wraps up very quickly mm, without much of a bang or mm. i don't know it yeah it's after so much through the series mm. it feels like it goes that final conclusion you know the bad guys defeated and mm. the good guy wins it feels like it it kind of goes out on a little bit of a whimper for me mm, absolutely if i mean i'm honest it's interesting how dragon is actually out in the open seen by hiroshi and the other characters in front of build base Quite a while before, like the finale, you know, we because mm. often the the actual big big bad, if you like, you know, the kind of uh, main villain of the piece, uh, only often appears in like the last episode, last two episodes or something. So it's quite interesting that we yeah. see him, you know, he attacks build base in an earlier episode, and but but like you say, when it actually comes down to the final confrontation, it feels like Jig beats him kind of easily. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's. I mean, he delivers the sort of death blow in dramatic, sort of cool super robot fashion, and it's quite a cool sort of way in which he takes him out. But there's just not much of a struggle to do it in the sort of second confrontation in episode forty-five. So that feels no, a bit... no. Because the thing is, for me, the episodes building up to like 
episode 43. So the previous seven or ten episodes, I think, are absolutely fantastic. Mm. Right. I think there's, that you know, that run with Flora's story, she dies in 43, which then leads into that final two-episode confrontation. Mm-hmm. I think some of the very best episodes of the series are, are in the 40s. Absolutely. Yeah, like episode 39, mm-hmm. episode 40, episode 42, episode 43. Mm-hmm. I think it generally gets better it does. and better as it goes along. Yeah. Then you get to episode 44, you have that build-up, and then you get into episode 45... And it's a bit confusing because it's a 46 episode series and we'll, mm. we'll come on to that in a minute. And then then this final confrontation is just weak, mm. I, I, I feel. And like yeah. I say, I just really feel it goes out on a, that final battle, mm. goes out on a whimper. And then that final scene of Hiroshi and Michi on the cliff, mm-hmm. you know, and that final kind of little monologue to close the series, essentially. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it was so good, it was so good. And, like, I was... Honestly, I felt quite unsatisfied with the yeah. way it concluded. I'm, I'm the same. I, although Jig sort of finishes them off in a sort of pretty cool fashion, there's no build-up to that. There's no sort no. of... Um, there's nothing to make it too dramatic. The previous episode has a bit of drama. You know, the kind mm. of... The sort of first half of the fight, if you like. Um, yeah. Because they both get kind of wounded to a point where... You know, they they both kind of suffer a sort of critical blow and kind of retreat. Yeah. It kind of felt like they should have merged those two together, and you know, had yeah. had them kind of both scoring a kind of fairly like damaging hit on each other, and then Hiroshi desperately kind of, you know, gambling everything on one last attack, and yeah, and then you know, merging those two fight scenes and sort of cutting out. Some of the some of the middle would have worked for a much more satisfying final episode. I completely agree because, like in episode forty four, you know Hiroshi's having this nightmare and he fears for his death mm. in this confrontation with Emperor Dragon, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of builds that that, that there's that real p- kind of palpable tension mm-hmm. in you know the characters and and in the build up to this final, mm. like I say, this final confrontation. But the final confrontation just. Just it's just, yeah, you know, and... it's just, you know, for want repeating myself, just, it just doesn't amount to anything. And there's all the building blocks are there for a really good conclusion. Going back to what you said about it, you know, it, it, the um, the previous um, episode being a bit of a letdown. You, you mentioned the nightmare and the sort of palpable sense of like it might be the his final battle. He, he may in fact mm. die. There's that whole scene um, where he goes and sort of tries to make peace with everyone. You know, he, he goes and he's mm. really nice yeah, to his that's sister. Right, yeah. He's really nice to yeah. his mother. They all sit down. They have a nice yeah. meal. He tries to spend time yeah. with everyone, doesn't he? And he tries yeah. to sort of like, kind of, you know, basically say goodbye. And then there's the whole yeah. thing with the professor. The professor tells him that yes. in order to defeat Emperor Dragon, he needs to embrace death. Yeah, there's this really kind of inspirational pep talk mm. from him, doesn't he? And like you say, it's like to overcome death, you have to accept it mm. sort of thing. He's basically, you know, saying there's a very real possibility you might die, so you're going to have to give it everything yeah. you've got and not have any fear. And yes. he kind of yeah. takes that to heart and remembers it during the sort of final battle. So, like you say, all of that build-up is fantastic. Yeah. But if they'd only sort of, you know, merged some of the stuff from, from 44 and 5 together, we would have had a really yeah. satisfying final episode. The fact it's broken up does kind of 
detract a little bit from it. And it's, it's a shame because all the content's there, it's just not properly arranged. Yeah. <laughs> I think they just need... It just, let's say the final episode, episode 45, just feels very, very rushed. Mm. It almost needs to run into episode 46, mm. I feel. So you, you had like three episodes to maybe drag it out. So episode 46 is then this recap episode mm-hmm. at the end of the series because I was really confused when episode 45 because I was like that feels like the end of the series mm. that's that's it over but we've got this episode to go yeah and then you get into this recap episode which you know is a very very succinct retelling of the whole series mm. in one episode mm-hmm. but as you'd said off air you know it's <laughs> if you'd done that as a mid-series re- <laughs> recap it'd been very very <laughs> yeah, good yeah it would have been yeah um but it feels odd to have stuck that on the end. It does. Some, I don't know. It it feels a very, very odd... It's funny because... Something very odd happened at the end of the series. Mm, I wonder if there was perhaps some sort of a production hiccup that meant they mm. had to change things around. It's funny because mm. we came off the back of uh, reviewing Wattery a small time ago and yeah. that had a similarly sort of unsatisfying it, final it, it, episode, uh, yes. which was part recap, part new footage, but was mainly... It was mm. one of those ones where there's a framing device to show old footage mixed with yes. a bit of new. But that was an odd one because that could have easily episode ended the previous episode as well. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like something weird happened right at the end that, that gave it that kind of unsatisfactory conclusion. Mm, um, and weird structure. And I say it's just a real... Yeah, it's just a shame because it was just getting so good to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, some other things within the... The storytelling that a few things I just kind of want to pick up on I always like become a bit of a running joke for me in my notes um, with Michi crashing mm. in uh, Big Shooter. Mm-hmm. Like nearly every episode, Big Shooter gets hit, you know, takes a round, goes in flames, and then crashes. And yeah. it's almost it's every episode in the second half of the series. Yeah, and it happens to her. <laughs> there's something I put in my notes. You know how there was an episode where. <laughs> Where she has uh, an X-ray, and it's it's sort of revealed that she has this kind of um, she has something in her skull, and they're worried it might kill her. And I was thinking that's from all the bloody big shooter crashes. <laughs> 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 she's she's got some sort of brain hemorrhage from crashing big shooter. Because <laughs> she literally goes down in flames mm. almost every episode. Yeah, it's like literally almost episode. She'll either you know. Get hit by some sort of enemy projectile and crash. One of the um, one of the Hanover Phantoms or or uh, or sort of Mega Beasts or Swatter, <laughs> you know, some, yeah. something like that'll happen. <laughs> you know, obviously there's there's that one where she's she's not well and she sort of crashes it. She can't sort of pilot it properly. There's always something, and it, yeah, you do feel for her a bit. It's like, damn it. <laughs> really yeah, I just, sort of I just end of the stick because I've yeah because in my notes I've got oh. Big shooters shot down again, Christian, Christian Mark. And then I've counted up, you know, and it's just like again and again and again, you know. Oh, and funnily enough, Michi gets shot down in Big Shooter and crashes again. So if, so you if you're a marathon in it, you might be able to make a bit of a drinking game out of it or something. Yeah. I wouldn't like to see the state you end up in. <laughs> Actually, talking and saying about marathon in it, to be honest, it's one of those shows, apart early on, I couldn't watch more than an episode at a time. Mm. I found it very, very, I don't know, I did find it very difficult to watch, like, bunches of episodes. I must admit that the early portion of the show is not the best. I feel like it really does hit its stride, you know, late in the sort of Himika episodes and early in mm. the Dragon episodes. 
You know, Himmick is quite a good antagonist, but a lot of the other parts of the show, you know, there are a lot, a lot of the sort of formulaic mm. parts of what you know we all know and love um, for the Super Robot shows is a little bit, you know, too much to to kind of like watch a few in a row. Yeah, yeah, because I I remember quite early on in when it was still in single figure, you know, episode three, four. I tried to watch several at a time, but. I just found it quite difficult to watch. Yeah. It was a show that I, I remember sitting down and watching, t- I, you know, I think I had an hour and thought I'll sit and watch maybe three episodes. Mm. And after the second one, I thought, oh, do you know what? I don't feel like I can actually sit for a third episode of it. I know what you mean. It's, um, it, it is definitely a lot of the early episodes do follow the sort of formula of the sort of typical Super Mario mm. show a bit too much. I mean, as we've said, we've praised the fact that, you know, there's a lot of elements of Jeek that are quite different, like his modular design and yeah. know, sort of cyborg and more superheroish sort of uh, structure of the show. Uh, sorry, elements of the show, rather. But those early episodes are very much um, sort of cut and paste the sort of plot, mm. you know, defeat the monster and, you know, sort of uh, help the sort of uh, this, the guest characters that have just shown up. But as it goes on, it does divert from that path quite a bit. Mm. And it actually it mixes does, up yeah. quite a lot of things. There's some quite subversive things in the later half. Um, yeah. Especially, I mean, there's one episode, just one example that comes off the top of my head, uh, where um, Akima and uh, Amaso, the uh, the Timica's generals, which who are now being um, forced to sort of work under Emperor Dragon, they have these two new mecha, sorry, three new mecha, I believe it is, and um, and Dragon's like, well, I'm not trusting you to go on this mission. You can forget about that. Do you really think I would trust you, cowards? And he just gets yeah. his sort of supernatural sword out, slashes them, and destroys <laughs> all of them. And he's like, yeah, I know. On this mission. But it has kind of built them up to be the sort of antagonist to that episode. Yeah. So there's some really good stuff like that in there. Yeah, because there's like episode ten with like the ice yes. queen or ice princess. That's a really good you episode. Know. I love that one. It's a really, really good episode, and it's got this really ethereal feel to it. Mm, absolutely. Now, that episode was the first one where I was like, right, I feel like I'm going to get into this show now. As you said, the early ones were a bit difficult to watch, you know, more than one of at yeah. a time. But when that one hit, I was like, I really liked that episode, because it, it was it's really an emotional one, and it kind mm. of draws on sort of yokai legend and things like that. Yes, that's right, yeah. Because there's that bit, as you mentioned earlier, you know, because this is a 70s robot show and people do get vaporised and blown mm. up and, and whatever. Because there's the bit where Turala, like, cuts her hand on the, the ice mm-hmm. and it's quite, it's not sort of gruesome or graphic, but there's, I don't know, but it is quite, there's a darkness to it. It's not a typical thing that, you know, 10-year-olds or 8-year-olds or whatever you would see in that type of cartoon, you know, yeah. this. It's not a, it's not done in a cartoonish manner. It's done in a more no, no, exactly. realistic manner like you would see in a movie. Yeah. The, the shots and things, the composition of it and the way it looks, it doesn't look like yeah. a typical sort of cartoon blood and that. And, it's, and it is sort of framed in a kind of serious way. And that's the thing is, it's a really interesting episode in terms of what we were talking about with Flora as well. It's an early indication that, you know, not all of Himika's, all of, all yeah. of Himika's servants are evil. The Hanawa Phantoms have all been created by Himika. You know, she has yeah. the power, uh, as um, Professor Sheba says, she has the power to turn inanimate objects into creatures. So it yeah. seems that she forms, I would assume she forms all her generals from rock because they kind of come to life from rock at the beginning of the series. But what's interesting about Harala 
is that she seems to already exist. She seems to be like a sort of yokai yes. type of figure, like because there is yeah. a yokai in um, in Japanese mythology that's a kind of ice queen that plays the flute, and yeah. um, and she speaks to um, Miyumi in her dreams, and she wants to become a friend, and, yeah. and she has this kind of real sadness of the fact that she loves children, but she's forced to sort of uh, kidnap Miyumi by Himika. Yeah, because Mimashi kind of forces Chirala to fight Jig and, and when she starts there's this like very sad kind of flashback to her like running with animals and stuff mm. you know which again kind of harks back to this you know as you say kind of forced against her will there's another episode where um there's a guy that they uh, like a general that they bring back and mm. all he wants to do is live with his dead family yeah. live in peace of his dead family sort of mm-hmm. thing you know there's all these things and it and it and it carries on with flora's story in the mm. you know through the second half where there's all these people who are forced to fight against their will mm-hmm. in like very very sad kind of circumstances yeah, very tragic you know. sort of circumstances you're right and it, and that's the thing is you know both dragon and himika you know have their own henchmen that they created but then they mm. also use innocence as well and yes, and, yeah. and so Tarala's story is quite interesting because of the fact that you know it has this kind of it has this sort of um, legend sort of feel to it because there's a picture book that Miyumi has yeah. and she sees her in her dreams and like says yes, yeah. it's based on sort of whole yokai mythology and everything so it has this kind of fairy tale kind of quality to it but it's mm. really tragic and sad and the end yeah. in which Tarala you know meets her end you know Hiroshi's kind of forced to kill her Miyumi is just sort of hitting uh, Hiroshi in his chest and saying, you yeah, know, why did yeah, she have to die? You yeah. know, like, you knew she was good. You knew she was being controlled by yeah. him again. He's like, there's nothing I could do. Because she struggles up to a point, and then Himika sort of hits her with this sort of magic kind of blast, and that kind of turns her into full, full sort of evil mode. Yeah. And then she can't resist anymore, and... That's when Hiroshi's like forced to kill her, and it, and it it is just one of those very sort of tragic, seventy super rubber show episodes where you're just like, oh my god, yeah, and it cause, ends. Because <laughs> Tirana actually kind of disappears from the book after the battle mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, you know, and it's, I, I mean, I I think that episode is the best episode in the series. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a fantastic. You know, it totally stands alone. Doesn't minutes it? Of, uh, um, you don't really yeah, need to know yeah. the rest of the sort of plot to watch that one, and it's it's a very no. strong one. That's definitely my favorite, and that was when I kind of thought, you know, beyond the first episode, I think it's picking back up again. And you know, I was kind of like, if yeah. you can do a one-off episode like this, it's got my attention again. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, the other thing that did make me laugh in this, um, and you, this kind of occurs more in the first half and the second half, but and it's a bit of a go nagai thing as mm. well, um, is the people running mm. everywhere yeah. and that like the foot, the fast footsteps. You know, if you watch <laughs> Get a Robo or Mazinga or whatever, it's like it happens. It's it's I don't know if it's just one of his things. Yeah, but there's always people running, and there's always this sound effect of like pick lots of footsteps running really fast from here to there. <laughs> yeah. It is quite comical, that, yeah. And it's another Gonagai uh, trait. Uh, you know, you mentioned there are quite a few Gonagai uh, sort of uh, tropes and things. Um, is that Don and Pancho have a sort of yes. uh, quite crappy robot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, we can Mechadon. talk. Mechadon. Yeah, yeah, Mechadon, yeah. And Mechadon fulfills a very similar role to uh, Boss Borat in, um, in Mazinga. You know, he's, yeah. that, he's the sort of punk character's sort of 
dilapidated, yeah. thrown together robot that's a bit crap, but accidentally saves the day sometimes. <laughs> Although not in the early half of the show, he's just an embarrassment in the early half of the show. But it, yeah. but in the latter half of the show, he does sometimes uh, sort of pull it out of the bag, and mainly by taking enough time to get you know hacked to bits to actually help yeah. the uh, characters hold out a bit. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, because that's typically what they, they do, isn't it? Is that they they will kind of buy time for uh, Hiroshi and Jig, um, yeah. and they actually get praise from you know director Diary and yeah. and from uh, the professor as they well. Do, they do in the so, in the latter half. There is a quite significant scene where the where the the kind of help stall Emperor Dragon a bit, don't they? Um, yeah, yeah. But like you know, Don and Pancho are such sort of you know completely typical silly sort of seventies characters. Yeah. You know? And, but it re- it does bother me though the portrayal of uh, of Pancho, you know, he's because he's kind of that very sort of typical comedy fat guy, obsessed with yeah. food, really dumb. Yeah, his nose, as he said yeah. earlier on, is constantly running all the time. <laughs> In fact, I've got on my notes the eternally snotty fat guy stereotype, Pancho. <laughs> yeah, he is. They, they they are the kind of stereotypicals. And the other thing with them is for for no apparent reason, this yes. pink thing pops out of the ground and like says guy you're really stupid or yeah why did you do that that was stupid you were an idiot and then disappears just sporadically for no reason for yeah. no explanation as well i don't know if it i don't know if it's a it's subtitle things the subs we had on this show weren't the greatest compared to some of the ones we've had but it never seems to be named or kind of you know introduced no. in any way none of the characters refer to it no. by name or there's not even no. a scene where they're like oh you know such and such, you're always no. berating us. You know, it, there's just nothing like that, and it is no. it is the weakest link in the human of the show that, because the characters look so stupid on their own with all their you know various sort of misadventures. You don't need somebody to be standing there, Nelson and the Simpson style, going ha ha. You know, there's yeah. there's no need for that <laughs> because yeah, they, they no. look completely ridiculous on their own. <laughs> so there's yeah. no need for it to be underlined. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's very, very, very strange that because it's it's so random, mm. you know. Like you say, just completely unexplained. And I looked everywhere for a name of it or whatever, but I yeah, no. very, very strange. It is, it is very it strange. Is very odd. I mean, you know, it's it. But one thing about the uh, the characters of Don Pancho that's that, that is quite good is the fact, although Don is, you know, like uh, Hiroshi's rival and he's always trying to sort of defeat him on mm. the racetrack and things like that. There is this almost sense of sort of bravado and false rivalry where actually he does really like him. And that comes through quite a few yeah. times. I like, I quite like that sort of thing, you know, that the he does actually consider him a friend and he's he's always out there, you know, he's first out there to try and help him in Megadon if anything goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just a very odd addition to the show, I think. Because as we said, there is there is a comic element that runs through it. It is a children's show at the mm. end of the day. Um, you know that kind of offsets that darkness. But how I don't know. It's just so bizarre. It's just it very, very just what you know. It's just a <laughs> struggle. Um, the other thing I quite liked about is the is actually there's no sort of standard mid series upgrade type mm. thing. It's kind of the gradual. upgrades are kind of gradual, aren't they? Because very gradual. You kind of get. You get the cyborg upgrade after Hiroshi discovers he's a cyborg, and then you get the kind of the Jig upgrades, kind of That's spread right. out through the, yeah. the the second over the second half of the series. Would, it's it's different. Yeah, it is. It is quite different in that regard because you mentioned the cyborg upgrade because you know as we've said when Jig transforms, 
Hiroshi's body transforms first. And it's in yeah. this kind of red humanoid form with these kind of protrusions from his head. Yeah. Um, but then when he gets the sort of upgrade of his cyborg form, to me it more resembles a sort of, um, it more resembles like a kind of uh, Mazinga pilot uniform. It kind yeah, of has that sort of yeah. slight look. Even though it's his mm. actual sort of metallic body, it has that sort of colour scheme. Yes. Um, and then, you know, we get the uh, the sort of upgrades to uh, to Jig's arsenal, some of which are very cool. Mm. I think at that point is where you can instantly recognise it's a Gonagai show. Mm. Very much I so. think some of the character designs and, and Jig's design, but I think once you see that, the, the upgraded cyborg mm. bit, for me, the wings on the head bit mm. and, and all the rest of it, there's... You know, when you look at Devil Man and mm-hmm. Cutie Honey as well, mm-hmm. as well as all his mecha stuff, there's loads and loads of kind of mm. very go Nagai. Yeah, the non mecha stuff has has characters with sort of head protrusions and yeah. things, and you know, there's a lot of villains with that kind of look where it's the horns. Yeah, it's almost like horns, but it's yes. actually the character's hair and things like that. Yeah. You know? In fact, in Devil Man, um, Akira's hair does actually be- sort of morph into the kind of horns of Devil Man. Mm. You know, I, I think there's from a stylistic wise, you know, it's it's very very clearly a going to guy show. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And I mean, you know, we we mentioned obviously there's rocket punchers, there's multiple rocket punchers, in fact. Mm. Um, and but Jig's arsenal is really cool. Like I really like yeah. uh, a lot of the uh, the additions uh, that spring up throughout the show. I mean, Jig Drill is is the sort of first one to appear. That's the first kind of yeah. replacement for the uh, the fists. That's that's quite cool. And we get uh, we get a, a great arsenal as the show sort of goes on. There's just some fantastic Jig yeah. Bucklers, my absolute favourite. Two really nasty looking buzz saws. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and I yeah. love the way they're quite dynamically animated, where it kind of has that sort of close up shot. They start to rotate, and he does the kind of dynamic pose. That is just really cool, sort of classic '70s super robot stuff. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But we should yeah. talk about the modules yeah. a little bit, and you know the upgrades, because it's quite cool how there's a module. For every single situation and uh, an environment, Jig yes. can find himself in. Yeah, you say the like the bazookas and and the thing is, he gets a series of upgrades because he there's like the marine parts. Mm-hmm. He can go underwater and um, the earth parts mm-hmm. for underground combat, and then the sky parts are reformed into a kind of weird plane sort of form, sort of plane sort of form. Then he can sort of fight in um, in, in the, the air as sky, well, yeah. you know, and all those. You know, and they just kind of get drip fed sort of mm. over a series of episodes over, yeah. you know, and sort of two thirds of the way along through the series. Mm. Gradually builds up this very, very big arsenal of of weaponry, which he then kind of uses. You know, he's got an answer for everything then. Yeah. As he fights Emperor Dragon in the in the towards the end of the series. Absolutely, yeah, and I, I really like the, you know the fact that you can swap all these parts. The modular idea is great, and then the mod the modules on top. Uh, you know, and being ready for any kind of situation mm. is a great thing. One curious thing about the modules, though, that I really thought they would use more often was that they use this quite dynamic piece of animation that shows all four modules in split screen. And then yeah. it shows you, then one of them's highlighted in kind of flashes and he chooses that one. I thought that was going to be a feature of the show from there on in, but they never mm. used it again. No, no, they only did it the once. Yeah, yeah that's right. Which is quite curious. I, I really thought that was going to be you know, part of the kind of stock animation, but I was quite surprised when they didn't use that again. The uh, the Panzeroid mm-hmm. add-on, which is basically like a, it becomes like a, a, a minotaur, doesn't it? It's like a horse body. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting because 
We reviewed uh, Panzer World Gullion mm-hmm. in a previous episode, which uses very similar mm. sort of mecha designs, you know, yes. the horse mecha designs. Yeah, the kind of like centaur-like, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And I did kind of like, did occur to me, it was like, oh, did, you know, Takahashi mm. get that kind of influence from something like Jake? Possibly, you know? possibly. I mean, it's, I think the thing is, obviously the whole thing about Panzer World Gallant is, you know, the whole night aesthetic probably lends itself mm. well to horses as well, but it's but it's a possibility. The Panzeroid is really interesting because it sort of feels like it's Jig's ultimate weapon because it's only brought out at quite key times. Yeah. You know, and it always yes. like messes up the enemy like almost immediately. Like there's there's barely any struggle when once the uh once the uh, Panzeroid is is kind of deployed. So it, it does sort of feel like the ultimate part of his arsenal. Yeah, because the thing is, you know, you said about you made the point there about, you know, in Gallian you know, the, the the knight thing, but Jig uses a lancer. That's a good point. You know, yeah, in it as well. So there is still that mm-hmm. that knight kind of element to mm. the, the Panzeroid upgrade Definitely. as well. So yeah, it's um, it's always curious. I think is I, I with anime, I always you see all the influence. I always think that's not there by accident. Mm. Somehow, do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. I always, you know. It's always really interesting to see these interviews with um, the designers, you know, talking about their influences and stuff and, you know, seeing if you were right with mm. <laughs> what you thought about yeah, yeah. influences on certain things. Sometimes it's kind of obvious and other times not so much. Okay, so I think that wraps up all the main points that we wanted to talk about the show. So we'll close that section there, then we'll kind of get into some of the production side of it. Sure. So now we have a look at some of the mecha designs and the monster of the week designs and, and, and everything else. So Jig's design, you know, is quite a unique design, I think, in, mm. in Super Robot. And, you know, as we kind of mentioned in some of the main reviews, the fact that it kind of starts off as this head and then mm-hmm. magnetically connects all the other bits to it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, is a very, very unique yeah. um, kind of feature in, in Super Robot anime. Because it was part of Takara's Magna Robo line, I wonder if they approached it from a toy design viewpoint in what if we could have all these different parts that attach. Mm. Making it easy for parts to be swapped out and things and then that would be something we could utilise in the show as well. Yeah, because I think the Jig head pendant, you could see that being a very popular toy. Oh, yeah, you? you can absolutely. imagine kids with pendants with the jig head on it yeah. you know as its own sort of separate toy so yeah, i'm not sure if those were sold but it'd be interesting to know if those were the gloves as well yeah because you know, we, we we didn't actually mention that he sort of he smashes his gloves together and says steel jig yeah and he also says build up when the various parts yeah. sort of connect so you can imagine kids you know sort of shouting that in the playground <laughs> yes with this all sort of, uh, pendant around the neck yeah so yeah then, yeah I, I completely kind of got that feel that those kind of features were very much geared towards the toy or merchandise mm. side of it. Um, in a similar way to as the Kamen Rider with the belts and everything, that's a very big mm. thing in Japan. Everyone collects the belts and stuff, you know. It does feel like there were very much some merchandise-based decisions on that. Because mm. obviously manufacturing and toy and technology was quite primitive back then. Mm. So they'd have looked at ways of trying to make stuff as close to the show as possible. Or, yeah. you know, something that they could replicate relatively easily. So it definitely kind of feels um, like that. And as you said, you know, the colour scheme of Jig as well is mm. is very, very unique. 
Um, yeah, he is. He, I mean, he's kind of green and yellow is not a color. Mm. He's not a color scheme. No. You would think of when it comes to super robots, definitely <laughs> yeah. not. But it works. I mean, he's he's kind of. I think you know he's kind of humanoid form. The fact he has quite a slim frame, and you mm. know, like you know, he has these kind of like red markings and things, and the sort of protrusions from the side of his kind of head. Like, I just really like the sort yeah. of style of it. To me, um, the most out of left field designs that uh, Nagai ever did were were Grendizer and Jig. Like they stand mm. out among his kind of yeah, oeuvre yeah. Of, uh, of robots, and for that reason, I really like both of those designs. But but I think with those two though, again, I think they're quite. If you know a little bit about Go Nagai, I think those two like really do stand out as Go Nagai designs as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, there is definitely that. There is definitely that stylistic similarity, as we said about you know the Panzeroid forms. They all look, they all work quite well, and they're all quite distinctive. Um, mm. So I think it definitely was a a lot of very unique stylistic choices made for a mid seventies show. I mean, definitely. It was kind of early on in the genre, but there was so much at that point. It's not like there was, you know, there was lots of lots of run, uh, sort of long running anime um, mm-hmm. out at that time, and there was lots of sci fi anime rather than, as well as just mecha anime mm-hmm. out through the mid seventies as well. So there was a lot to um, take on that. And and moving on to Big Shooter, which is the support craft, um, you know, it's got quite an interesting launch sequence, and and this yeah. is where again I think influences. Because um, I always feel the big shooters launch bit and it going through the water. I always mm. feel there's a nod to um, Gatchaman's launch mm. when the Phoenix comes up yes. and launches from underwater. There's there yeah. was always a real the way it bursts through the water as well mm-hmm. um, when big shooter launches. I just yeah I I just yeah. really got that kind of Gatchaman. Absolutely, I mean Gatchaman. Um does seem to have been a massive source of inspiration for uh, for Japanese pop culture. There is so much you can kind of trace um, in that. And I think that that is a very real possibility that it came from that year. Yeah. Because Big Shooter, I quite I, I like quite like it because, you know, Michi goes through the tube thing, which is this mm. kind of standard entry sequence for a, mm. in a super she robot goes show. In and she gets first, into I think, sh- doesn't she? And then, yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And then you get into like the main craft, and then she comes down like a ramp, and then the distance she goes before she gets to the final launch tube, she just go on for miles. Yeah, it's you know, quite doesn't an epic it? Journey, it's like, a, yeah. <laughs> she goes into this final tube where she blasts into, and then you kind of get the go 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 bit down one side, and then there's like the no go down the other. Yeah, um, I always think that see, that whole sequence is quite neat, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, we we do actually get to see the no-go activating at one point when it fails to launch, which was quite mm. a nice touch, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think it only happens the once, but it it's, it's good that they actually, did, you that they actually did the no-go bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, and she kind of, you know, when she goes out of that final tube, is this kind of epic roller coaster like series of sort of loop-de-loops and she goes upside down and everything. She's been pushing yeah. through the mill before she even launches the damn thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like an astronaut training facility or something. <laughs> In fact, um, you know, it does kind of give the impression that it puts some series of G's on it because it uses the, you know, the the very sort of shaky um, kind of camera effect for the animation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, essentially they're the kind of, and we, you know, we've talked about the cyborg form um, mm-hmm. as well. So, really, that's kind of, it, there's no other kind of main 
protagonistic mecha in it. Um, but then being a, a 70s uh, mecha show, there are, you know, there's a new monster of the week, um, mm. you know, and we get a, a new Hanua phantom or robot beast um, every week. Um, mm. And if I'm honest, I think a lot of them, uh, and to me, there's a lot of just very generic kind of designs. There's yeah. not a lot that, that really stands out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in yeah. that, the only one that, um, the only Hanua Phantom that kind of really does stand out is the robot shark that um, appears in episode twenty-three. Yeah, that, that was, was quite a, you know, that was quite um, uh, a, a neat design, and it assists Marina in in that, you know, in the battle in that episode. So the, them combined, I thought, was quite good. But yeah, I think everything else was just it's kind of typical. It's just kind time, of, it? yeah, it's it's fairly standard. Fairly standard stuff. We do get the uh, the title across the bottom again. Another standard. Yeah, it introduces uh, each uh, each sort of enemy, doesn't it, with a little subtitle. Yeah, uh, which is very very um, sort of uh, reminiscent of many <laughs> many shows of the era, as you say. But the other designs that I do quite like, though, is um, the Orochi Fortress, which is Ikemur and Amasos and, and Mishima's in the first part of the show. They're their kind of fortress, which is which is based again on a, a, a Japanese legend. Mm, yeah, it's because it's got these kind of um, serpent-like sort of uh, snakes coming out of it, um, mm. and because I believe like um, Yamato no Orochi is some sort of uh, legendary yokai with uh, with sort of snake form or serpent yes. form. It's kind of somewhat castle, somewhat a UFO, mm. <laughs> and with yes. lots of skulls on it. <laughs> yes, yeah, and yeah, I've seen seen a few of those uh, over, over the years in uh, Super Robot shows, but but I do I do think it is a cool design, though. You know, it it all sort of comes mm. together, and the way it's utilized in the episodes um, is often quite interesting. You know, they do some cool things with it in terms of they what. do. It's um it yeah it is it is a cool design and they do utilize it really really well. We get um the dragon boat which is the uh, emperor dragon's fortress, mm-hmm. which again is a, an interesting design. But for me, the weird thing about that is it looks like it's got the Disney castle stuck on it. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does look very reminiscent of the Disney Disney Logan castle, doesn't it? It's that is quite <laughs> odd, and I noticed that as well. Um... <laughs> It's it's weird because it has the same sort of spires and everything, mm. and the same sort I mean, of spires really... and battlements and that. It does very much look like you know maybe they were maybe while somebody was sketching they were watching Disney movies. I don't know because it's got this real you know it's kind of this gothic kind of scary main section a bit to mm. it. But then at the back, like the command center bit, mm. it just looks like the Disney castle. It's a it's a very uh, it's a very peculiar design. I think yeah, absolutely yeah. It's what, that did have me scratching my head a bit as well. I thought. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. It's unfortunately there's, there aren't a lot of standout designs in terms of the enemies, but it's they sort of serve the purpose. You know, they are kind of typical of the kind of yeah. genre. And that's the thing. Is, and they all know, kind when of you've seen a lot of them. It's hard for some of them to stand out. You know, maybe if yeah, it was the first show you'd seen, some of them might appeal to you a bit more. Yeah, and that's the kind of point I was going to make. Is like when you've seen a dozen 15 20 super robot shows it, they all do kind of blend in together and the thing is i think you're absolutely right is they all do serve their purpose because you know one of the jig's main weaknesses is like electricity mm. um you know they use very there's various hanua phantoms and robot beasts that are designed to um mm. effectively demagnetize yeah 
jig, aren't there? You know, yeah. so they they all kind of serve their purpose in in putting jig under pressure and and creating that tension and mm. and conflict for you know and difficulties for jig. So. Um, you know, and that's absolutely fine because that's how these stories work. So, yeah. you know, it's, absolutely. It, you know, there's no problem in that. It's just that as, as purely as a, an aesthetic design, mm. there's some, you know, there's, there's not much that's particularly inspiring. In, I suppose it's the old thing of it, uh, so. familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, it's, it is just what it is. You know, the, the are kind of uh, typical of the genre. You know, as you mentioned magnetism, it, one thing just struck me is that I, w- I would be very interested to know if the original Takara Jig toy used magnets to connect mm. the parts. That would be very interesting. No, I'll have to do some research on that. Yeah. Because that, cause I, w- I wonder if that may have been a sort of factor in deciding to use magnetism as a theme as well. Because that would yeah. be something that would be quite easy to implement even in the 70s. And, and and that's a call to our fan base here because I do know that you know we do have some followers and and some people that listen to this podcast who are really 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 ingrained in in that sort of thing who who might know mm. so if yeah. you do know send us a message and and let us know absolutely yeah that would be that would be cool to know and I think just moving on to production in general I think it's actually quite a well animated show mm. um, what mm. we watched was a rip of the the DVD series that came out during the 2000s um you know it's quite a clean by and large it's a very clean looking rip you know mm. um and the animation is actually you know i do think it's one of the better animated shows yeah um i mean that transformation scene where g turns into the head mm-hmm. you know it's actually very very smooth it is yeah but surprisingly so a lot of similar morph sequences mm. probably would be missing a hell of a lot more frames and have a more jerky mm. transition but it works quite well. The way he kind of leaps and then it mm. sort of starts to sort of take shape is is quite dynamic. Because he kind of he does the the fist pump thing and then goes into like a barrel roll, which then then he then morphs into the head and the head mm. all kind of comes out and it's it is a very 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 smooth sequence. I can see very, why very it, why Jig's um, both Jig in terms of his aesthetic and uh, and the transformation mm. is. It's such an iconic one, uh, both in mm. Japan and Europe. It is very interesting. It, you know, it's the sort of thing that would have made me sit up and take notice when I was a kid, if it had aired yeah. me, you know. it's it, it would have absolutely been the sort of thing that just got us pumped and got us really in, enthused with the show. Yeah. The animation in general in fights, there's some quite dynamic mm. sort of fights. Mm. You know, it, it also has that trademark 70 Super Robot overkill, where Jig sometimes just really goes to town on an uh, enemy mecha. And just, you know, goes way overboard in trashing it. <laughs> Which I always yeah. always find really funny. Like, you know, when they'll do something like take off an enemy limb and beat them with it. Or, you know, something like that. I believe there's one bit in an early episode where he, where he sort of steps on the arm and pulls it off. <laughs> Which sort yes. of causes an explosion. Then he's whacking him with his own parts and stuff. I, I just love that sort of thing. I just think it is, it's very funny and it's very kind of, it is very, um, you know, typical of the genre. But it's something about the genre that I love. <laughs> yeah it's and it does have it does have some really kind of interesting color palettes as well because when they go into the room to talk to professor sheba there's that reddish pink tones to yeah, it yeah with him as lieutenants there's a use of purple sometimes yes in some of the supernatural scenes and there's some really like creepy uses of uh of sort of coloring in the character's eyes at some point yeah yeah i mean obviously you've got trademark glowing red eyes from some of the evil characters and things 
But there's also an episode where Hiroshi's really ill and he's got these really sort of deathly kind of coloured eyes. Yeah, yeah. He's, and he's like sweating really profusely and it looks creepy as hell. But yeah, there are some interesting coloured parts in general. And as we mentioned, yeah. Jig himself is quite unusually coloured as well. Because there's some quite interesting angles used because some of it reminded me, Lewis and I reviewed Anjo Tsushio Maru. You know, it's one of those very, very, very early anime films mm. at the kind of start of the modern anime industry at the beginning of the 60s and that you know had some really interesting like angles and stuff and i can see a little bit in this as well there is just occasionally there's just like a really well thought out shot and it's a it's a slightly different angle and kind yeah. of layup of of the scene you know there's there's some really really interesting animation in it quite cinematic the other thing as well places, yeah in some way in places it's very cinematic yeah but some episodes though have the worst frame jitter I have ever seen in any show that I've watched. Yeah. I mean, it's like really, really, really bad. Yeah, I know um, what you mean. It makes you wonder what they were doing while they were filming it or mm. cutting it together to cause that level of frame jitter because yeah. some scenes just are just horrendous. I mean, it's bouncing up and down so much, it, you know, it gives you eye strain. It's very bad. And the other thing that's quite interesting as well is that the actual episode length, the you know, the main content is very short. It's only eighteen minutes because it has a very long, op- it has a two-minute yes. opening sequence, which is very long, and then it has the longest next episode preview I have ever seen in any show as well. It is weird that the structure is very different to your typical show. I mean, even in the seventies, they all had a pretty similar length. It is odd because typically the, the episode length is the standard twenty-four and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so normally you get a minute and a half opening minute and a half ending 30 seconds next episode preview and then you get about 21 21 and a half minutes of episode content mm-hmm. but but gee and i've gone back and i've checked some episodes of you know get a robo g and um guy king and some other stuff that was around it and they typically do stick to the 20 21 minutes of mm. episode g just is very short <laughs> yeah some, you know have like two verses in the opening sequence you mm. know like the, it, just when you think it's you know where where a normal show's mm. song would end, it sings a bit more, and it's it's quite it's quite weird that you yeah. know, you're just not used to it. But the next episode preview goes on for about a minute as well. Mm. You know, it's a very very long. It tells you loads and loads. You know, minute and a half, two minutes. Some of them tells you an awful lot of what's going on in the next episode. It really does. Next yeah. episode preview. It's uh yeah, it's a strange setup in, indeed. But going on to the music, as you just mentioned, I, I had some. It does have some really good music. I do quite like the uh, opening theme. It yeah. does have that... It does have a very bouncy kind of like... Um, bouncy, yeah. You know, a sort of nice kind of quality to it where you do kind yeah. of feel like singing along with it. <laughs> I like how it also gets the commands that yes. uh, Hiroshi says into the lyrics as well, like build up and... <laughs> and it's and I think magnet power is a lyric as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the in-series music in this, a lot of it really reminds me of 70s cop shows, American cop shows. Mm. Yeah. It, it's got that kind of... That twangy um, sort of guitar and the... Trumpet kind mm. of stuff as well. Every time I saw, I heard some of the music, I just... It did just kind of feel like... You were yeah, 70s expecting cop to show. see Hiroshi sliding over a bonnet of the car <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah. Of a car or something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, one, one brief thing I just want to mention before we go on to the music a bit more is... Isn't it strange how, considering his profession as a race car driver, um, he doesn't actually race very often in the series? There's like two episodes, the first episode, mm. and there's a there's a car race in something like episode 33? 
That's kind yeah, of strange yeah. to me. But anyway, that's that's just totally uh, off the cuff. Just kind of that just came to me. And but going back to the yeah. music, you know, I do really enjoy the music. Some bits kind of subtle, and other bits kind of dynamic. It always seems to suit the mood. Mm. I think it was was it maybe Daikengo we talked about where there was some kind of music that sort of sometimes overpowered the show a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And um, and that always always really pisses me off when music gets in the way of the show rather than complement it. I mean, I know a lot of composers say, you know, if you really notice music, then it's probably not doing its job. But I sometimes disagree yeah. with that to a degree. It, you can notice it and it can be too intrusive and in your face. And Jigs is, um, you know, I think it has that right balance. It's dynamic when it needs to be. Mm. And it's sort of subtle when it needs to be. I think the uh, background music in this is, is really, really good. I think it's, I think you do notice it for the right reasons mm. in that it's just kind of got that really cool... 70s kind of vibe to it I I think the music in it's great to be honest yeah it's really really uh it's like you say it's really effective um for the scenes um and it kind of adds the right kind of tempo and you know mood to the scene especially in some of the action sequences it just with the style of the visuals you know that kind of 70s look of the animation and the artwork mm-hmm. that 70s cop show <laughs> filled in the music I think really suits it it just kind of the, the aesthetic and the, the music they really meld they meld very well and it really always, really well yeah they always seem to like break out the actual jig theme song at exactly the right time mm, as well the right time yeah I've noticed yeah. that some shows that reuse a lot of music will reuse it nine times out of ten in the right place but then every once in a while there'll be an episode where they completely put it in the wrong place yeah, and yeah. This show never does that. It's always like you know, spot on at the exact moment of transformation, yeah. or when you know Hiroshi's in trouble, it sort of kicks in, and then then you get build up, and you know the whole sort of transformation sequence. And yeah, it's very well yeah, handled. absolutely. Yeah, it is, and I, I think generally it is a, a very well produced show. I think you know, as as we said, you know, it's got some you know the animation and the artwork's very good, good complementary music to it even if the episode is a little bit on the short side, but no, I think it's a, a very, very well-produced show. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Some dynamic fights and some really good mm. uh, animation in general, both in terms of the stock animation, and there's just very little reuse, really. Yes, actually, and that's, you know, yes, that's a good point as well. I think, obviously, there is the stock footage for the, some of the transformation scenes, but other than that, there's very, very little reuse Mm. of footage in it which is quite unusual as mm. well so yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. yeah so thumbs up for that as well definitely right we'll move on to our wrapping up our thoughts so we'll get into our final thoughts on jig and you know get to our rating and kind of what we thought of the overall so for me it's I have a lot of mixed feelings about Jeek, mm. if I'm perfectly honest. Same here. For a lot of the things I really, really like about it, there's there's quite a bit that I don't quite like about mm. it as well. Awesome, yeah. You know, some of those early episodes, it was a struggle to kind of watch a marathon. It is, I think, a lot of ways it's quite simplistic. You know, as mm. I said in the introduction, um, I watched it raw, and having watched it with subtitles, I haven't learned too much more than what mm. I knew just you know yeah just watching it in Japanese without any you know English interpretation so mm. it is very very simplistic at times but mm. 
you know, there are those episodes we talked about, you know, episode 10, that run of episodes and the run up to the conclusion there, which were really, really very good. Mm, um, yeah. That I do really like, you know, as we said, the colour palette, the way it looked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when it's good, I think it's very, very good. But when it isn't very, very good, it drags it's a... exceedingly average. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've put in my overall thoughts and my notes is that. I really do feel it is a real mixed bag. I mean, the main two stumbling points for me is that Hiroshi is extremely difficult to like, particularly yeah. in the beginning. Um, the story is very fast-paced in some places and sags in others, which is pretty much mm. what you've just been saying. But then again, um, once it picks up momentum, when when you have those good episodes, um, you know, peppered amongst some of the not-so-good ones, I was kind of, me interest was reignited. Mm. And... And then, you know, once we get like, you know, almost sort of a, you know, like a quarter through, um, we just get start to get a really good run. And, and then, you know, the big shake up that happens with Emperor Dragon just mm. is just kind of, boom, my mind was blown. I was yeah. just like, I was not expecting that. And I was so on board for uh, sort of seeing what happened. In it. And I really loved the way that the generals kind of, um, you know, became mm. more sort of central characters and the whole sort of betrayal angle. Um, and rebellion angle became really interesting. So, yeah, so for exactly. those reasons, yeah. you know, it is a, a very mixed bag sort of plot and structure wise. Some of the tone stuff, you know, like you say, mm. Hiroshi is a very, very difficult character to like. Um, mm. And then you have like the Don and Pancho flip side, and even with Ikima and Amaso, you know, there's there's there is like an ongoing bit of very slapstick comedy with it as well, mm. which kind of they do sit at odds a little bit. Mm, I, do, I think, yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, and the and addition the, and... of that pink creature is just really yes, a terrible idea. That, yeah, I that mean that's is just the awful. One thing I yeah. would just totally erase from the show. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that completely derails it at, um, when that appears because it's just because you're just looking at it going. I mean, I think even children would be like, "What on earth was that all about?" I think yeah. that would confuse anybody of any age watching Absolutely, it. Absolutely, because and there's no introduction to it. There's no naming no. of the character or you know anything, and and that's that is just a really odd addition. That, you, you know, if you're going to put something like that, at least introduce it and kind of explain it a little bit. And there's no kind of mechanism to how it, as to why it appears or not. It just yeah. it's really, really, really random. They always they also seem to forget about it for large. Yes, periods yeah. of time, which I, I wonder if it was one of those cases where a staff member was trying to push it, and the other one's like, "Oh, let's not do that again," you know. Yeah, I, it does feel like that sometimes. Yeah, someone goes, oh, "I'm just going to sneak it in this episode," um, and then that kind of very kind of disappointing last few, like very end episode and last two episodes, where it does kind of feel like something happened and it mm. it it petered out when it shouldn't have petered out right at its most important time. So, um, yeah, I do. I do really um, struggle with it, but at the same time, as we've talked about through the review, you know, it's quite unique, this use of colour, how Jig transforms, how Hiroshi becomes Jig, and all the rest of it. You know, there's some really different elements for a super robot show mm. as well. So I'm very conflicted in how I feel about it. Really. I am, yeah, I am very much so. Um, it's it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult show to rate, absolutely, because the cyborg element makes it so unique, and I mm. really love Jig's design and all of his weapons and everything. Like you know, I do feel it. It is kind of like 
he is very much a sort of super robot uh, kind of toy enthusiast's dream. You know, with all his yes. his kind of uh, his modules, the, the Mac drills and the sort of buckler exactly. blades yeah. and everything like that are very cool. And and Panzeroid as well is another great addition to yes. it. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's because there are so many things that I'm kind of at odds with. I found it quite difficult to rate. I think I'm going to go mm. with um, sort of an. I'm going to go with a seven point five for me, seven and a half because. I can't quite justify an eight because of some of the sort of stumblings of the show. The the fact that it, it takes a little while to get going properly and it yeah. feels standard and simplistic at the beginning. Some of the awkward comedy and that uh, that sort of creature and some of Don and Pancho's stuff is kind of a bit yawnsome. You know, I, sometimes I like it, but other times it goes a little bit too far, I sort of feel. And like I say, there's just there's just a few sort of there's quite a few plot holes and a few like daft things yeah. about the show. That even yeah. even being accepting of seventy super robot show tropes and the fact that certain things just are in a super robot show and you have to kind of yeah. accept them, they still feel a bit silly. So for that reason, I think yeah, seven seven and a half for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm giving it a seven as a middle ground mm-hmm. for exactly the same reasons you've just said. I think it's very simplistic at times. Um, there's lots of tropes. There's lots of plot holes. The ending isn't very good. Um, which kind of pushes me down to the five or six mm. kind of thing level of yeah. mediocrity, but then the good episodes are exceptionally good. Yeah, you can see why it's such an iconic show, basically. Yeah, exactly. You know the the design, some of the the artwork and and stuff in it. You know some of that uniqueness in it, which even now, you know, with the benefit of you know forty five years of sight on it there's the, you watch it now and think oh there's still stuff that feels fresh in it mm-hmm. which is quite remarkable really considering the age which really is um remarkable considering age and those the kind of elements then push it higher up mm. as i said when it's good it's very very good so i think it's a seven in the middle somewhere yeah hard to it's it's hard it's hard not to like overall it's, yes uh, that's, that's it's that's, greater than the sum of its parts basically isn't it much like Jake himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find it hard to actually not like it. Yeah. You know, I, I find it hard to not like and to not recommend. Mm. Yeah. Because it's far from perfect. Um, you know, I don't think really as a show, um, like I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Zambot 3. Mm. You know, I, I still think that's one of the best Super Robot shows. Mm that I've watched. Um, yeah. I really like, you know, Get a Robo and Get a Robo G. Mm-hmm. As a whole, I think are probably a bit superior, but mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, but I still find it hard to not like G. Same here, yeah, and I'll be, I'll be very interested to check out both the manga, which is only yeah. like four volumes or something, I think, um, and yeah, also the sequel series, because I just really dig sort of Jig's aesthetic, it's sort of, you know, style, it's weaponry, and the kind of whole idea behind it. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to checking out more sort of jig related uh, stuff in the future. Because mm. I think the sequel I think benefits from a lot of things. I think it benefits from only being thirteen episodes, and I think yeah. that allows it to be more focused on the good parts mm-hmm. of jig. Essentially, you know, I think jig has did all the right good groundwork. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the seventies, that that allows that means thirty years later. Mm-hmm. Still God Jig can be, you know, a little bit more focused because I, I do think Still God Jig is a very, very good series. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I think it's got a great legacy. I mean, it's massively popular. Mm, I mean, even the responses we've had on Twitter to the shout out for this episode, it's been, you know, I think is more than we've had for a lot of, Absolutely, certainly any yeah. of the other any of the other super robot shows that we've done yeah. you know there's a massive amount of love for it um and it's quite interesting we had a question from um gail the masked man at the masked manx uh on twitter um he asks are there anywhere legally to watch or read it in north america and unfortunately there aren't but given everything that discotech's been releasing over the uh Mm. the last few years I wouldn't rule it out at all um, absolutely I mean, they do seem to be uh, pioneers of gun guy stuff seem to be kind of yeah, fair so giving his stuff at every opportunity so hopefully if you'd asked me five years ago I'd have said no chance mm. um, now I'd said yeah I reckon there's probably a fairly good chance that it'll yeah. come out now even if I think it's like one of those will... SD on BD releases that we're yes. getting and that's the only way I can see it getting released is mm. one of the standard definition Blu-rays in subtitle form only. But do you know what? If it means I can own a legal version of it and have it on my shelf, I'm I'm all yeah, for it. You same know. here, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and those and those discs look quite clean and as well. You know, mm. as well. They, I mean, I think they do a great job of actually kind of restoring that. Oh yeah, totally. And he also asked, also going from G to Shinji, what are your thoughts about Jig's legacy? And I. And I think for all the reasons we've talked about why mm. we like Jeek are the reasons why it's so seems to be so universally popular. Absolutely. Um, I can understand why it was popular in Italy and Europe and South America and why it still has that enduring kind of legacy in Japan as well. Mm. It's there, there is a uniqueness about it, which means I think it will always have an ongoing kind of legacy and, oh, yeah. and kind of ongoing fandom. Mm-hmm. Definitely, it's going to have a very enduring fan base. I mean, forty odd years ago, and you know, it's yeah. still uh, still sort of um, fresh in people's minds. And it's kept it's been kept alive by uh, merchandising and appearances in Super yeah. Robot War, Super Robot Wars, the uh, the sort of ongoing video game franchise. And um, there was there was just a very recent uh, toy release from a company called King Arts. Yeah. Um, that is pretty stunning. There's two different versions. There's a Panzeroid version, and there's uh, one with clean jig armor and battle damage swappable parts, which is really really nice, but quite pricey. You know, and I think the <laughs> the fact that it's still getting those toy releases, it's still showing up in Super mm-hmm. Robot Wars, it's still engaging a you know a younger fan base, which is why it's you know and it's still popular. So yeah, I, I think it's popular for the right reasons as well. Mm. There's one of those things that I think. For the right reasons, it's getting that kind of... It's got that legacy, um, which which is quite pleasing to see, really. Mm. After all, there's not many uh, sort of uh, super robot anime that inspire a kind of live-action movie. That, uh, no, that no, is exactly. not actually an adaptation, but a kind of spiritual kind of uh, love letter to it. <laughs> you yeah, don't get that yeah. very often, do you? So it's, no. it's made a hell of an impression, this show, and it's really interesting to see how popular it is still and uh to to everyone who's um you know a massive fan of it i hope you enjoyed the episode but i do think a large chunk of that is the go guy effect mm. he had a way of creating those things back in the 70s you mm-hmm. know that a very distinct look and everything else um and i think it often helps his name attached to this stuff because people will go and look up oh yeah stuff like about devil man and maybe mazinga and when we'll we'll find out about you know, it will directly lead them to stuff like um, Jig as well. So yeah. I think it, I think it benefits from that. But 
despite that, I think it stands up on its own own mm. feet. It's hard to separate the two, almost. Um, mm. But you know, I think it's it does kind of stand on its own two feet as well. I suppose if you haven't watched all the Gona Guy stuff, um, that might not be a factor for you. But yes, certainly, if no. you've seen if you've seen uh, his stuff uh, previously, you will recognise some of these kind of trademarks. But I think if you were coming into the genre or into some of the older anime stuff, I always feel Jig wouldn't be your first route. I think mm. there were probably no. other things that would lead you to Jig. It'd be more um, likely to be something like Getter or, or Mazinga or you know, yeah. maybe something non Gornagai, um Raideen or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a recommendation, I think. Um mm. for all its flaws, it's it's a it's definitely a recommendation. I think if you're serious about super robot history and uh, you know, whether it's just super robot stuff in general or the works of Gornagai, you know, it's either way whether you're a robot scholar or you just want to check out all the stuff he did, um, it's definitely yeah. something that you need to to check out to sort of uh, understand the sort of legacy and impact of. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it has its place, uh, you know, its key place in you know the annals of mecha history. So, uh, well said. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. <laughs> Right, so that brings us to the end of our reviews today. So that was a, a good, interesting discussion about mm. a very interesting Super Robot show. Absolutely glad to have finally gotten round to it. <laughs> <laughs> So for our next episode will be the third part of our Macross retrospective where we will be reviewing Macross 7. Um, so we will be going to effectively split Macross 7 into two reviews, uh, two parts of the re- retrospective because it had so many follow-on OVAs mm. and, spin-offs um, and such. add-on spin-off bits that we're going to have to kind of separate it. So the next episode we will review the TV series and the Encore OVA, which was kind of like the, the true ending to the TV series. And then we will do the movies and all the other bits uh, as a as the fourth part of, of our Macross retrospective. So I'm quite interested to do that because it's been a long mm. time since I've seen Same here. Macross 7. <laughs> I watched it maybe getting on for 15 years ago now so mm-hmm. I'm very very interested I'm not going to say anything now but I'm very very interested <laughs> to see how I feel about it on a rewatch I'm laughing because I, I can I can anticipate all of your uh, all of your sort of uh, ideas and possibly concerns <laughs> <laughs> but yes it will be it will make for a very interesting episode and I'm sure there'll be uh some uh, some some quite uh, funny comedy in that one. <laughs> yes, Not saying why yes, I think it's it's be... unfamiliar. 
So uh, yes, that could be. Yeah, I think I, that's going to be an interesting one. Definitely, definitely, definitely. definitely. Interesting in inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. Right, where you can find us? So you can find this podcast on SoundCloud and pretty much every other podcast hosting service that that uses RSS feeds. So uh, you can find it on Amazon and iTunes and spotify and all that kind of stuff just search for retro mecca podcast you'll find it find us on twitter at retro mecca find our blog retro mecca podcast.wordpress.com on the internet as well we have other articles on there so uh, we do a lot of toy and video game reviews as well um craig tell us where we can find your blog um you can find me um anime heads retro world at wordpress.com and you can find me on twitter at anime heads retro and you can also find my other podcast, Retro Anime Podcast, uh, all the same hosting services as you can find this podcast. Just search for Retro Anime Podcast and find me on Twitter at Retro Anime. So that brings us to the end. So glad to finally got a Go Nagai show under mm. our belts. It feels yeah, it feels like a little <laughs> bit of an oversight that maybe we should have covered that a bit earlier. But hey ho, we've got there. As we said, though, it's I think it's more of a sort of a scheduling and length thing. You know, we we, yes, we have yeah. talked about covering things like Mazinga and Grandizer earlier, but we were just like, God, they are so, some of them are so long, especially especially Mazinga. God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We it's, and, it's difficult because you know, we do we are working full time and trying to fit this in around other things. And that's why we're so yeah, irregular. Exactly. You know, it takes a long time for us to get through this stuff. <laughs> it does, and you know, as I said in the first episode, you know, part of the mo for the podcast was to avoid some of the bigger, mm. um, sort of more established franchises because there's so much more to mecha anime than your Mazingas and you get a Robos, mm. and you know, we've avoided Votomes. We've we've decided to do a franchise. You know, we decided to pick Macross, um, but mm. you know. Gundam and and all the rest of it. It's you know it's yeah. There's there's a lot more to it, which is kind of what we really really want to get into. I'd so, like uh, I'd like to do so, the other uh, Nagai shows at uh, some point, um, but it's it is a case I'd, of maybe doing it in a different you know possibly doing them in uh, different mediums and things. Maybe writing about them or sort of you yeah, know and I've definitely got them in bit by bit. <laughs> I've definitely got some of the other Go Nagai shows in the schedule, so. We will cover cover more, but as I say not necessarily maybe get a Robo or, or Mazinga because as franchises they're so to try and do them justice is going to take quite a lot of uh, a lot of time. So uh, yeah, try and cover the but, uh, the lesser known uh, sort of ones first. Mm. Anyway, but we're definitely not done with going a guy. That's that's for sure. So yeah. on this podcast, cool. Anyway. So on that note. We shall say goodbye. Yes, we'll bid you adieu. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, everyone. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. The opening and closing theme music to the podcast is Molten Alloy from Purple Planet Music. All other music used within the podcast is copyrighted to its respective creators.